Welcome to the dark forest. Jackie and her pals will never bore us. Shameless confessions about our obsession will make us laugh and smile. So let's explore the dark forest and dark down for a while. Happy New Year! Hey, it's January. Welcome to the Dork Forest. You know the websites, JackieCation.com, DorkForest.com, TheDorkForest.com. This month, yeah, we don't have a sponsor this month, so feel free uh, to donate to the Dork Forest. Everyone should give me $100 a year, I feel. You could give me them in $8 increments. I have not set up any way for you to do that easily. Anyway, go to JackieCation.com or DorkForest.com and uh, fill in the donation button, and then I will be donated to the credits, of course. Patrick Brady, going to fix this audio. Thank God. And uh, he is a wonderful man. Then Mike Rickberg sang that song, composed it and sang right there at the beginning with his girlfriend, Sarah. He's going to sing the Mexican hat dance at the end of the show. And Vilmos fixes the website, hosts the website, has his own podcast called Green Room Radio. Feel free to listen to that. Thank you so much for tuning in. There's a lot of merch you can get at JackieCation.com, Dork Forest stuff. And there's also my stand-up schedule. This week, I am in New York until the 19th doing stand-up shows and live Dork Forests. At the end of the month, I'm in San Francisco doing Sketchfest, a live Dork Forest, and a bunch of sets. So if you are in San Francisco or New York, that's going to happen. Otherwise, I'm wandering around the world doing stand-up comedy. Check my dates at JackieCation.com. Feel free to follow at JackieCation on Twitter. And there is a Ranger of the Dork Forest group that you could ask to join on Facebook where different, just like a, there's a couple hundred Rangers there just talking about shows and talking about their own dorkdoms. So if you want to join that group, it's on Facebook. Okay. Too much. This is a great one. Tune in. Thanks a lot for listening, folks. Hey, it's Jackie Cation. I'm here with Brian Thompson. I was on your podcast, Quit It, uh, on AmateurScientist.org. What a, that was like a year and a half ago. It was a long time ago. I barely remember it. Uh, except too, that I was, I had a great time. That you were we, very charming. I remembered being charming and lovely. Uh, Brian Thompson, people, he, uh, he does, uh, you're writing for the UCB yeah. sketch? Yeah, yeah. I'm now writing for, uh, UCB, uh, mod team, which is their, their house sketch teams. That's awesome. And your first show is going to be in February, right? February 18th. February we don't 18th. Know here in our Los Angeles. name yet. Yes, in Los Angeles only. Right. Uh, we're not bi coastal yet, right. but, uh, we're going to be paired up with uh, New Money, which mm-hmm. is a, sort of a, a legacy team that's okay. been there for a while. We're a brand new team. and uh, I know the word legacy from the movie um, oh, Dang it, I'm brain freeze with the... Is it, uh, Home Alone. Nope. You just, you just, you put I, your hands on your face and so right, I, and, and did a squishy I'd motion go to because you could, it's a good way to go. Uh, what I say is uh, the movie is set in the College, 1977, Jim, John Belushi. Animal Jim, House. That's it, Animal House. That's yes. the only reason I know the word legacy, because they right. had legacy people. In the, yeah. yeah, Such a long way to go. This is a legacy. If your parents were on a sketch team at UCB, you can just totally get right in. <laughs> oh, I want that to be it. I want that to be what it is. But yeah, no, not quite. What but, is a legacy um, team? Uh, they just, they, they were there last year. I'm not mm. sure how many years they've been there. Um, you know, there are t- teams that sort of roll over and then okay. teams retire and new teams are born right and we're a brand new team i'm very excited about it that is exciting and i love ucb so it's always it's always a sweet treat okay so it is i am uh uh, i'm doing stand-up in new york this week find me at jackiecation.com and uh and uh stalk me via foursquare or whatever the hell or uber maybe you drive an uber (laughs) any of those uh any of those so brian thompson you said to me 
Can I please talk about Vonnegut? Because it's been a year and a half and we talked a year and a half ago about you being on the Dork Forest talking about Vonnegut. Because you enjoy the works of Kurt Vonnegut. I love Kurt Vonnegut. All of it? Pretty much. I yeah. mean, there are definitely ups and downs. Uh, Vonnegut, one of the things I find inspirational about Vonnegut mm-hmm. is that uh, at any point in my life where I feel like maybe I should have gotten started in my career uh, when you uh, were four, a lot sooner. When when Mozart did, you see these people who have like TV shows and they're twenty years old, right? And it's like it, Vonnegut didn't have his big success until he was in his uh, his late thirties, his forties, right? Um, and uh, part of that was that he spent a long time as sort of a work for hire, golden age of science fiction sort of short story writer. Oh, he did the Pulp Fiction kind of stuff. Yeah, or? like the Ray Bradbury, Isaac Asimov okay. type stuff. Um, and that stuff, some of those are pretty good. A lot of them are kind of very forgettable. Right, right. I'm sure it was soul sucking. It was before uh, he kind of found his voice. Sure, but you got a right to get. You got to perform to find your voice. You got a sure. right to get your voice, I guess. So, did you read Vonnegut when you were a kid? I didn't. Um, well, I guess technically I was a kid. It was I was maybe like a junior or a senior in high school. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, was my, it Slaughterhouse Five? It wasn't. Thank my, God. My, I, I had always heard about Slaughterhouse Five. You always hear the name Slaughterhouse Five, and I think I had been exposed to the movie. Okay. Um, I think maybe I had rented the movie from the library right. on the VHS, nice. uh, and then found it really boring and didn't watch past the first five or ten minutes. Right. They didn't really. It's such a convoluted story that it, it's very hard to make it into. I always confused it in high school with uh, Catch Twenty Two. Yeah. Which is a great movie. Yeah, and a very similar kind of book, Catch-22. Joseph Joseph Heller, I think, was Vonnegut's favorite writer. Uh, they were definitely friends. Oh, that's neat. Um, I think Vonnegut's uh, favorite Joseph Heller book was a book called Something Happened. Oh, yeah? Um, which I don't know if you've ever read that. I have not. It's, it's very strange. It's a book just about a guy who's sort of a... Uh, sad sack schmo who just <laughs> comes home and his life is miserable and it's about 400 pages of this. Oh, fantastic. That yeah. sounds like our crumb without the pictures. <laughs> and uh, yeah. guess what? I don't want any part of that. I'm sorry, Joseph Heller. Oh, well, I mean, it's not as I'm quite sure. as good as our crumb. There's right. no like big booty ladies that he's climbing all over. Right. Which uh, is another part of the thing that never drew me to our crumb. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But people do like our crumb. Sure. And, uh, and, and, and one of my listeners was like, you gotta read Linda Berry. And, uh, Linda with a Y, Berry. And she is now, now older, but she's always done, uh, I think, oh, I'm spacing that, spacing everything. My, my brain is on, is on three tracks right now. But Linda Berry, I'll put it in the notes, uh, we'll find it. And, um, she did cartoons and then she also does uh, comics rather. And then she also does prose, but it's very slice of life. It can be sort of that sad sack slice she of life stuff. the one, she's kind of got frizzy hair and round glasses and she's in a lot of like comics <laughs> documentaries. I don't know. I don't oh, know. Oh boy. I wonder if that's the same she person seems, I'm thinking of. I, I've, I've, you know, the guy suggested it, so I went and I, I saw, I read some interviews with her, and she sounds hilarious and funny, but I, I have a hard time getting into, I've been, I've been given a lot of books recently, yeah. and, and I'm doing it, I'm, I'm plugging along, and he's like, I want to send you this one book. It's called A Hundred Demons. And I looked at it, and it looked really dark, and I, and I couldn't face it, and so I said, you know, don't waste your money, I'll try to get to it, but I don't, I don't want you to waste your money, because I may not read it. And he was like, well, I just think she's really, really a very inspirational for women. And I was like, I can't, 
I'm panting. I'm panting yeah. with the idea of reading that book right now. So you know, as as a as a big like literature nerd and like liberal arts snob, yeah, I, I'm perfectly fine with like a difficult book. Yeah, um, but I have in my life sort of just sort of given up on difficult books that are also extremely dark and depressing. Right. I'm not going to read Victoria. Secret. Victoria. <laughs> it's a great book. <laughs> Virginia Woolf yeah. is George Eliot's Victoria's Secret. <laughs> right. She walks into the river mm-hmm. and, uh, <laughs> but she's only wearing underpants and that's where it gets exciting. Oh, so good. It's, Virginia Woolf though. Yeah, Virginia no, Woolf. I've, read Virginia I've Woolf? never been able to finish any Virginia mm. Woolf. There's things that I haven't been able to read that I would like to read. I had Carrie Brownstein on the show and she was talking about how much she loved Evelyn Waugh. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. and um, and other post World War One sad sack authors, and I was like, I wish I could. I mean, because I know that they're beautifully written. I know the prose. It's like I would love to read poetry. Yeah, because poetry is so it's a full. It's a lot of smart words being done. I could, I sure. could, I, I could, I could learn things. People know you're smart when you can quote it. Sure, I'd love to. I I have books up in my house uh, that are just on display. <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> best of luck. <laughs> yeah, I've got that giant. Um, uh, the complete works of Allen Ginsberg. Yeah. Which at a time in my life, I, I read and enjoyed the same that I would enjoy a novel. Yeah. Um, but that time is, that time the, is totally bad. Yeah, TikTok already. <laughs> like I've got a lot of classical mythology here that I enjoyed at the time, but I can't. There's not a lot of rereading of Oedipus going on uh-huh. or Aeschylus or whatever I'm trying to say. Wow. It's going to be a great episode. It is. Brian Thompson, let's talk about Kurt Vonnegut. Well, the okay, first one so- I read was Mother Night. Really? Yeah. That's really interesting. That's the one that I used to teach. Oh, really? When I was a, a high school English teacher. Oh, wow. Uh, and the reason I chose that one was because I thought it was particularly relevant to our modern society. Yeah. And the, the whole theme of Mother Night, if people haven't read it, it's about a, uh, uh, a guy who works for the Nazis as a propagandist, but he's a double agent for the United States. Right. But he does this for so long that he basically just lives his life as a Nazi propagandist. Right. Right. And then finally the Israelis are like, well, we're going to kill you. Right. Yeah. And he's like, but I worked for the CIA. And the CIA is like, mm, we've never been able to admit that. Exactly. But the theme of it is that you, you, you are what you pretend to be. Right. To uh, a very large and, extent. And while it has flashback stuff in it, it's pretty linear mm-hmm. and it's pretty easy to read as far as a linear. Like I do, that was one of my problems with Slaughterhouse Five is that I never knew where the hell I was. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that was purposeful with Slaughterhouse Five because he was sort of trying to, to, to emulate that sort of state of just massive confusion right. of World War II, especially his role in World War II. Right. Which was the first one you read? Uh, Time Quake, which is one of his, it was actually his last novel. Um, really? Because I don't think I read that one. That was like, like late 90s. And um, it was because it was a gift from my girlfriend at the time. She thought I would really like it. Right. And she was very right. Oh, like, good. Time Quake has, um, as the years went on, Vonnegut sort of stopped caring much about plots. <laughs> and basically all of his books are autobiographies to a certain extent. Right. right. Uh, That's interesting. I think the last one I wrote read of his was Hocus Pocus. Yeah. That was, and that was like 90, 91, something uh, like that. It would have been 89. I have 89? the list in front of me, 1989. Oh, yeah. yeah. And this is chronological. So Timequake was not his last book. 
Uh, not his last book. So, uh, yeah, after Timequake, Timequake was his last quote unquote novel. Oh, okay. It was like a plot. And then everything after that are like nonfiction, uh, oh, compilations or, uh, Bagambo's Snuffbox is a compilation of his previously unpublished, like old, old, old short oh, fiction. Really old short fiction? Yeah. Okay. Like his old sci-fi stories. Interesting. Okay. Um, so t- Timequake last novel. Yeah. And it's barely a novel. It's, uh, <laughs> It's the, the, the plot is that, uh, there's this thing called a time quake, which is that everybody just basically stops and is zoomed back a year and they all, so it's like you've had an out of body experience where you're in your body from a year ago and you have to like a robot go through the entire year again and just sort of passively watch all of the things that happen in this year. You can't change anything. You can't control yourself. It's just everybody in the world re-experiences their last, the last, last year. year. Um, but really, it's just an autobiography because he just veers off of that plot whenever he wants to and talks about his own life and himself. He's a very big part of that book. Okay. Um, but what, what an interesting, I mean, I, I do love his theory of like what life would be like if you could do some of these things. I mean, that's one of the greatest things about fiction writers. Right. That I don't have, you know how people always say, I have a book in me. Mm-hmm. I don't have a, I don't know that I have a book in me. <laughs> <laughs> because he, or at least I don't have this many. I mean, this is amazing, this kind of thing. Yeah, he was, he was very, very prolific. Mm-hmm. Um, he was just, I mean, he was a writer's writer. I mean, he was like one of, of that generation of people who. Right, they're all in the background going, woohoo. I love it when he writes. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Like, I love to write, um, but I love rewriting. Like, I I hate, and I think a lot of writers are like this, where it's like the process of- You hate the first draft? Yeah. The process of putting it down is just torturous. Okay. But there are some people, like, you know, Stephen King puts out out a book every two weeks. Right. He just loves sitting at that typewriter and tapping away. For my birthday, I have a book that I am sitting on that is just too big. Mm-hmm. I can't do it. It's the one, and Dana Gould told me to read it, Which and one? I want to do everything Dana Gould tells me to do. Quite honestly, because he's hilarious, and it is, it's the it's the Kennedy book. I so, read that one. Yeah. It does it start quick and go? It it moves, but it's so weird. <laughs> it's I recommend it. Okay. It's so weird. Because basically the premise is that a guy finds this time portal and he uses it to try and stop the Kennedy assassination. Right. But five-sixths of this, like, thousand-page book or however yeah, long it is, so long. is not that. It's just him hanging out. In, in, in 1963. He, like, becomes a teacher. And he's just psyched about the haircuts and yeah, the dresses. It's, so, and... there is, it's weird. It's yeah, like time it's quick. It's, it's reliving a moment of your childhood, I yeah. guess. Yeah, to some extent. Yeah. I mean, like, and there are those writers that are just like, you know, they just like to tell a good yarn. Yep. You know? Mm-hmm. Stephen King is definitely one of those. I don't think Vonnegut was one of those, but he had that that kernel in him where he just loved a good sci-fi idea. Right. And so in his books, there's this recurring character of Kilgore Trout, who's like this. Right. How many books was he in? Kilgore Trout is in a bunch of them. And I was, forget how many he's in. Was, did he, were we introduced in Titan to Kilgore Trout? I feel like we might I have been. I don't know if you, I know he's in God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater. Um, I don't know if he's mentioned in Slaughterhouse Five. He's a big part of Breakfast of Champions. Man, I think Breakfast of Champions was the second one I read. Uh huh. That was the second one I read. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What was the first one you read? Did we? Oh, time it was Timequake. Yeah. That's right. And, um, 
Yeah. And so Breakfast of Champions, I just remember him having the doodles in the middle of it. Yeah. Like the cat's butt. Mm-hmm. And because I was 19 and I was like, oh, that's hilarious. He <laughs> <laughs> drew a cat's butt. Well, and it's really cool because if you is. hadn't been exposed to something like that before, it's really, I mean, that you could just, like he mentions an asshole and yeah. then there's just this little doodle of an uh, asterisk. Of an asshole. But yes. A, yeah. I mean, you don't. You, you don't, don't get that. You don't know that you can do that in a book. Right. Right. It was one of the, that was that was one of the greatest things about Vonnegut is that it felt like he was like making up the rules to what a novel could be mm-hmm. as he wrote them. It did was like, you did you ever read uh The Life and Opinions of Tristram Shandy? No. By uh 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 Lawrence Stern. This is a um I believe it's an eighteenth century novel. This okay. is maybe like one of the first five novels ever written. And it's so strange because it is, it's one of the first novels ever written, but it's also the first postmodernist novel ever written where really? there's weird tricks like that. It's hilarious. It's, uh, supposed to be this memoir right. of this, this guy is writing about himself, but it never actually gets beyond his birth because he just goes off on all these tangents. It's like everybody that shows up to his parents' house to witness his birth, he'll just like go and write about their whole backstory. Uh- Right, he'll just continue to create the characters yeah. instead of ever talking about the main character, and there's or there's, what it's implied to be. And it's an 18th century, but there are these weird things where, like, uh, a character dies, and then it's like, and here's what it looked like to him when he died, and then the next page is just black. It's just all black ink. <laughs> what? What's the name of the author? Uh, uh, Lawrence Stern. S T E R N E. The name. The book was made into a, a movie called um, A Cock and Bull Story. Okay. Uh, that Michael Winterbottom made that Steve Coogan stars in. Wow. Um, but, uh, but they, they adapted, like the book is unadaptable, like literally. <laughs> so the movie is about people trying to make a movie and failing of right. this book. Oh, I suppose. Uh, which, as opposed to many movies that just do that, yeah. just all on their own. They're just really, it's a lot of art. Yeah. Did you see the movie for Mother Night? Yeah. Did you see the Nick Nolte movie? I yeah. thought that that was a great adaptation. It's actually. good. It's good. Yeah. It's, it's really hard to adapt Vonnegut and get that voice across because so much of, of Vonnegut's writing is voice. It's not plot. It's right. barely character, although I think he has great characters. It's just, you know, it, yeah. movies so have to have a structure that his books just don't have. Right. There is, there's no arc to it. It doesn't, mm-hmm. but you, you know how they've taken so many Philip K. Dick books and turned them into movies with just all they've done is just pulled the guts out of it and gone, we're going to rebuild around this and call right. it Minority Report, and uh, you yeah. know, and it's Blade Runner and 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 Paycheck, and I mean, Paycheck had the greatest idea behind it, but I never it saw the movie. It was, it was, uh, it's Ben Affleck. In ben there. Affleck again, brain freeze. Um, ben Affleck couldn't ruin that movie. Because the idea was so awesome. Yeah. And it was just about um, getting a paycheck to uh, do something horrible and then they wipe your brain. Like you're, you're essentially like a walking hard drive yeah. for somebody for a, for like a minute. Mm-hmm. And then they wipe your brain and then you, all of a sudden you have a million dollars in your account. And you're like, oh, I wonder how I spent the last four months. And then you run into people who know you. And, and I'm sure Philip K. Dick did it in a way that was so convoluted. Because that guy, I don't know if you've ever tried to read any Philip K. Dick. Yeah. 
He was a crazy person. Yeah. It's quite literally a crazy person. He was completely and out of it. Just I, He had that. There's a word for this syndrome, but when you believe that everyone else in the world is fake and you're the only one that's real, like everything <laughs> else is a hologram or an oh, illusion. Right. Right. What is uh, that word? Someone's yelling at some, are you, there's a ranger <laughs> of the dark forest yelling it on the, I think he, he literally had that. Yeah. And there's uh, a few of his later books sort of get that idea across. Um, actually Total Recall has a lot of that in it. And that's um, him as well. Yep. Yeah. Total Recall is a, kind of a lot about how you don't know what your own identity is and everything else is, everything else in the world is basically just manufactured. The only one that I, I made myself finish was that, uh, the High Castle one, mm-hmm. because supposedly he was one of the first fiction writers, Philip K. Dick, to, uh, write about if, what if the Nazis won? Yeah. And I was like, what is that like? And it was, um, it was like all of the rest of his books. It's a dystopian future where um, people continue to live their lives. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> well, but, when I was a kid, I really enjoyed that kind of science fiction writing, that real idea based, like Isaac Asimov, like what if sciencey science? Kind yeah. Of, yeah. Um, you know, the Martian Chronicles yeah. and all that stuff. And I still have appreciation for it, but I sort of kind of grew cold on it because so much of it is. Uh, placing the idea above the characters. Yeah. And above the voice. Yeah, sometimes, yeah, that. Like a lot of it is. Maybe that's what, it doesn't feel as human. It doesn't, it doesn't feel warm. It's like generic middle-aged man is always the protagonist. (laughs) Right. Here's hero protagonist and he Uh will go forth in our lives. And, and it could be exploring some interesting philosophical ideas. I think that's what attracted Vonnegut to writing science fiction. I think that's what attracts every science fiction writer to writing because his fiction. characters are very six dimensional. I mean, they yeah. they're from every angle. A lot of them are basically just him. I think that, like that's that's what clicked for him, and that's when he became successful. Is um, Slaughterhouse Five really cemented it? But you can see it. Uh, you can really see it as early as The Sirens of Titan. Player Piano is his first novel novel. Right. And that's v- still very science fiction-y. I can't remember that one. Um, I read it, but... It's a dystopian book about... It was inspired by his time working for GE, and it's this dystopian future where um, the upper classes basically operate and create all of these machines to do all the work for them. Mm-hmm. So all of the working class people are out of jobs because robots are taking over, Okay, basically. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it's this theme that's been done over and over and over again. And right, right. But he did it and he did it. And if I remember correctly, I didn't mind it. I liked it. It's good. It's yeah. good. But it's, he hadn't really found his voice yet. The Sirens of Titan is very sci-fi-y, very plot based, but so crazy. Yeah. You start to sort of see, you see more person, person. Yeah. You see more personalities of the people in it. Mm-hmm. Is Sirens of Titan where the lucky thing comes into effect? Is yeah, where, there's, uh, uh it's you can't very say convoluted. that you were lucky and then they, they try to stone you to death. There's a Martian that. invasion. There's a guy who's created his own spaceship. There's, uh, he has to go to Titan because it's the only place where he has a physical form. Um, right. There's some like probability matrix thing that's kind of similar to what Douglas Adams did much later. Right. Um, are there leeches that, uh, that live on, that live off of your pulse? Yeah. It's been a long time since I read yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah. I bet. I remember that one. It's great. I think that one holds up really, really well. It really if does. If, if you were going to read one Vonnegut book to start with, that's not a bad one. It's not a bad one. Um, it's, um and I'd go that or Mother Night, I guess. Yeah. I mean, there are a lot of good jumping on points. I think, uh, Mother Night is a good jumping on point. Cat's, Cat's Cradle. Cat's Cradle, definitely. I think Cat's Cradle is the, is like, from people I've talked to, that seems to be one that a lot of people read first. Yeah, that one, it's, it's not a, yeah, cause it, 
I, I'm loath to use the word easiest, mm-hmm. but it's kind of, it, it's a quick read. Yeah. It, 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 it's very linear and it, and it's fun. Yeah. If I remember correctly. But I think when Slaughterhouse Five, I think the reason that all congealed is because it, so like the main event in Vonnegut's life was that he was uh, captured in World War II. He was right. in the army. He was in the Battle of the Bulge and he was captured by the Germans and they were shipped off to Dresden. Right. And they were forced to just basically be labor slaves for the Germans in Dresden. Uh, and they were housed in these old underground slaughterhouses. Right. Um, and, uh, and he worked in a factory, right? It was a, it was a munitions factory, wasn't it? I think they, they, he did a lot of different things. Okay. But it was um, warehouse, it was warehousey and, and, yeah. and, and factory work to some extent. And then the allies decided that they were going to show off. Cause I think at this point the war was basically won. And yeah. so they were just like, you know, they, they dropped the A-bomb in Japan and in was, Europe. Was, was the Dresden bombing after the A-bomb? No, it was before, okay. but it was like at that sort of point, like the war in Europe had pretty much been won, but then they just decided that they were going to carpet bomb a lot of these major cities just to, just, just to make their point and go seriously off. end this. And then the war in, in, in the Pacific was basically won and they decided we're going to sh- just put a, put a pin in this. Right. Um, right. You could, I mean, the, the argument at the time was <laughs> that they were like, we're trying to speed up the end of the war. Right. We don't want to negotiate with these people anymore. Mm-hmm. We're going to show them how, how badly we can really decimate them. Yeah. And, uh, so that's why they dropped the A-bomb. That's why they Dresden bombed. And Dresden but, was like the Paris of Germany. Like it was the cultural center of Germany. It was a beautiful city, beautiful architecture, just decimated. Right. They just rubble and yeah. fire, right? And fire, yeah, it was a nightmare. It wasn't napalm, but it was like that. Something right? similar, like a predecessor to napalm. And, and so, uh, these POWs, these allied POWs were safe in these slaughterhouses underground. And they were like some of the few survivors. Right. And so after the bombing, the Germans made them do like body cleanup duty. And right. Vonnegut and his fellow prisoners just, they spent days and days and days just piling bodies into piles and then shooting them with flamethrowers. It right. was a horrible thing. Right. And then it just, you know, that my, uh, my social studies teacher in ninth grade, he, um, he, he drove a tank in World War II and he liberated, um, Dachau. Oh, wow. Yeah. And he said that it was one of the grossest. I mean, he was like, <laughs> you can't. And that the, his commanding officer made the people from the towns come and bury the, the dead. And he made the Germans come and, and dig all the, all, all, all the mass graves for the Jews and the, and the, and, you know, everybody that was in Dachau. Yeah. And, um, and he made us watch, uh, <laughs> these documentaries about World War II, which had footage of, of the, of, you know, it was essentially the Why We Fight series, the Frank Capra. Mm-hmm. And he made us watch those. He was like, Hey, I'd live through it. Yeah. Uh, this is a uh, history and you're going to learn about it. And, uh, there you go. Get a note from your mom if you don't want to watch uh, Bodies Piled. <laughs> sure, sure. I mean, it's, yeah, and it, it definitely shaped the entire 20th century after yeah. that. Um, and, it, and it was, and it was Vonnegut's major, that was his thing. That was his major life event. And, and, and Slaughterhouse Five is, is he just decided, I'm going to stop sort of hinting around this. I'm just going to write about it. Yeah. And he, you know, it's told through the eyes of a fictional character, but, um, you know, it's about a character, Billy Pilgrim, who survives the Dresden bombing. Right. And, um, it becomes unstuck in time. Yeah. Uh, according to the book, you know, he just, he'll find himself in his body in different points of his life. 
And uh, at one point he gets abducted by aliens and he's put into this menagerie. Um, uh, but it's just sort of reflects this crazy mental state that, that war put these people in who were children. You right. Know, uh, they were 19, 20 years old. 18, 19. And, you know, a lot of them lied. You right. know, were 16, 17 saying that they were of age. They're the only people who really want to go to war. Yeah. When you're about 17, you're like, you know what I want to do? I want to <laughs> free the world and be of some use, you know, but yeah. you don't know how to do it. And you're like, well, I wonder if, you know, I remember, ah, uh, yeah, whatever. But, uh. <laughs> yeah. So, so I think after, after Slaughterhouse Five, he just, he just, I think that's when he really came into his own. And then, um, for the rest of his life, he, uh, yeah. He called on that. I mean, there are so many characters in his books that are, so a lot of his books are fictional, fictional books, but they're, they're written in the form of memoirs, like yeah. first person memoirs for yeah. these fictional characters. Um, and I think that over time, my favorite has become Bluebeard because Bluebeard kind of sums up everything of about his life, Monica. kind of. I think so. What um, was, what was Bluebeard? I read it. I can't remember it. Bluebeard is weird because it, it came in the middle of like this sort of lesser phase for Vonnegut. He turned out these books in the eighties that yeah, 87. Uh, are not really highly regarded and for some of them for good reason. I think Galapagos is his worst book by, by a good margin. Oh, crying out loud. I just finished it like two years <laughs> ago because I had it on a subway in 1989 and I left it on the subway mm. and I was like, I never did finish that book. And I was like, Oh, it all doesn't matter. Yeah. Thank you, Vonnegut, uh, as you age and get closer to death. Yeah, I think he was having money problems, and so he was just trying to crank out as many books as possible. But, oh, and I don't think he has a very high opinion of Bluebeard. But um, No, it isn't even on his list of Wikipedia giving himself grades. No, oh, right. He, you're right. He, he gave Slapstick a D, yeah, supposedly. And I like, slapstick is hilarious, but I understand why he gave it a D. And Breakfast of Champions, he gives a C, and mm-hmm. Happy Birthday, Wanda June, he gives a D. Palm Sunday, he gives a C, and it was his autobiography, yeah. the first autobiography he wrote. I this think Wikipedia he, thing he is hilarious. He was very distasteful of when he saw himself becoming over-self-indulgent. Right. Well, um, I mean, at least he could see it. But if you love Vonnegut, <laughs> that's great. Right. You want Vonnegut to go down the rabbit hole of Vonnegut. Authors are oftentimes the worst judges of their own work. Yeah. Like, yeah. I remember I was listening to your Tolkien episode. Right. Uh, uh, and you were talking about how Tolkien, like... And his his dying wish was that he could go back and just completely rewrite The Hobbit and yeah. make it more adult oh. and more in line with The Lord of the Rings. But, yeah, he's totally wrong about it. He's that. completely wrong. He's just, leave, leave it alone. Leave it alone. Yeah. It's not, it's done. But Bluebeard is a book about, um, it's about a guy who uh, was a World War II veteran, came back from the war, um, and he was a very talented artist. Before the war, he was a very talented, uh, like realist artist. He was a draftsman. He could look at anything and he could draw a picture that was indistinguishable from a photograph. Wow. Um, and he's actually a, a, an Armenian, uh, first generation Armenian. You know, he always had, that was the other reason that drew me to it is that he was an Armenian guy. And in Wisconsin, when any Armenians came up, we were all very excited. <laughs> yeah. Yes. The Armenian genocide is a huge part of that book. Right. Right. Uh, his, the, the main character's parents were survivors and, uh, were right. sort of tricked into coming into California thinking they were going to make their fortune <laughs> and, uh, didn't work out. Uh, all of America is a lie. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the cake is a lie. Let's yeah. just do it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Whatever is scratched on a wall is basically the truth. That's the only truth you can live by um 
uh, so this main character, he, he, he's loves art and he's really good at it, but it just never really clicks with him. He goes off to World War II, experiences some horrors. Right. Comes back and, uh, just kind of has given up on art until he falls in with these, uh, abstract expressionists. And there are characters in the book that are real people like Jackson Pollock and stuff. He falls in oh, with wow. his crew and he's best friends with them. He, uh, he was, kind of wealthy at the time because he had collected a bunch of art when he was in war. Okay. Um, and, uh, and so he makes friends with all these people. He becomes an abstract expressionist artist himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and his deal is that he paints giant canvases, one solid color, and then puts strips of tape on them. <laughs> and it's a big deal. He gets right. super rich and famous because of this. And then a few years later, it turns out that the brand of paint that he used uh, was bad and all of the paint from all of his canvases just sloughs off and all of his paintings are destroyed and oh. he's just like basically a laughing stock. Uh, and he retires to this house in, uh, on Long Island, like in the, or in the Hamptons. Right. Um, and doesn't, doesn't want to do art ever again. Um, ex- but doesn't it make it even greater art when it was just there for the moment that you had it? Well, the the whole point of the story, um, the book is often seen as sort of like Vonnegut's um, railing against abstract expressionism for being meaningless. Yeah. It's just a bunch of splotches and stuff. Right. That's not what it is. It's basically Vonnegut's – it's sort of a treatise on finding your voice. Yeah. And inserting your own humanity into your art. Um, the, this main character was a great artist – Growing up, I mean, he could look at anything. The like realism. Said, he was a great realist artist. He could do this, but there was not, there wasn't any soul in his art. Okay. Um, it wasn't about his own experience, and it, it, it didn't, it didn't click in any way. Right. And Vonnegut's argument isn't that the abstract expressionism was bullshit. It's that the ones that were great, like Jackson Pollock and stuff, yeah. they were able to put their soul into this artwork that might look meaningless to other people. Oh, okay. But that's what made them special, as opposed to your kid who just. Slap some paint. Right, right. On the canvas. It, it, yeah. Um, and, and so that's like, that's the whole point. It's called Bluebeard because there's, it's named after this French folk tale of this, uh, wealthy aristocrat who had a blue beard who was very cruel. Okay. And he tricks <laughs> some young girl into becoming his wife. Right. And he goes on vacation and he gives her a roll, uh, a ring of a bunch of keys to all the rooms in his mansion. Uh, and he says, you can go in any room you want except one. And, uh, of course she, she, she goes into that room. Gotta go into that room. Finds all the corpses of his previous wives. Oh my God. Uh, and that, and that is your gift of finding that room. You get to <laughs> join that pile of corpses. There's always corpse in there. There's if somebody a, tells you don't go in there, don't go in there. No, no. It's a, do we learn nothing from the first time? It was, it's, it's one of those irritating things is when God goes, you can have anything in this, in this room except for that apple. Sure. And you're like, now why would you bring up the apple? Why, why would you just to, just you, and, and the speculation in, um, really? Again, another author gone. <laughs> Tolkien and C.S. Lewis. Okay. Oh, yeah. C.S. Lewis is, uh, out of the silent planet and, um, the space trilogy that he does. Mm-hmm. The, the lesson, because at, in the second book, which is called Paralandra, he, it takes place on Venus mm-hmm. and Venus is a new Eden. And the entire rule of Venus is that you can't stay overnight in one of the stationary lands. 
Mm-hmm. There is everything else is a floating land. Everything is a floating island. And that's where all the good stuff is anyway. But there's, you know, the devil comes and says, why? But why the weird rule? Why the weird rule? Just stay here. Let's do this. Yeah. Let's let's show him. And they're trying to talk the new Eden in the new Eve into doing it. And so this the the whole book is a treatise of why why would God do that? Why would anybody do that? You can be anywhere. And it was all it is is I guess a lesson in obedience and trust. And so you're supposed to trust in the Lord and <laughs> and be obedient to the Lord. And make it the jack off motion in my head. <laughs> Exactly. And it's, but you're like, ah, oh, crying out loud. Why the testing? Yeah. Why the constant? Uh, yeah. Again, it, that just, uh, that just raises more questions. <laughs> right. Which is, you know, Vonnegut, not a religious guy. No, he was uh, a secular Very... human. He called it the, uh, the religion of his ancestors was atheism because he just didn't, <laughs> his whole family never grew up with it. In Wikipedia, they said that he was a free thinker. He was raised by free thinkers. Yeah, and he was actually organized about it. Um, yeah. he How can was, you be uh, organized in a non-religious way? He was one of the, uh, he was, I think, the honorary president of the American Humanist Association for many, many years. Okay, I believe I did know that. That's weird. Um, uh, yeah, uh, that, that whole subculture, which up until very recently, it's another very long story. I was a big part of myself and got out of it because it's full of horrible people. Um, <laughs> What's a group that's full of horrible people? Any number of groups. Oh, yeah. Like, any, as soon as a bunch of people get together, it's just all downhill from there. Because <laughs> somebody wants to be the boss. And then... Well, he's very... That's the thing about Habonigan. He's he's the most genuinely humanist writer I've ever read in that he... Um, all of his books are about... Even the ones that are sad and depressing. And he was just a sad, depressed dude. He right. Attempted, he, had, he had some... Suicide was a huge part of his life. His his mother committed suicide. His sister uh, died of cancer in an as- insane asylum. Oh, wow. Uh, her husband, and, and I can't remember which of them died first, but her husband died in a train wreck within like a week of, of her each dying. other. Wow. Um, Vonnegut adopted three of their children. He ended up raising seven kids. Uh, three were his own. Three oh. were his adopted were his nieces, nieces and, and nephews. nephews. Okay. And one was another adopted kid. Um, he, but Vonnegut himself attempted suicide in 1984, oh. uh, with pills and alcohol. Didn't mm-hmm. take. Mm-hmm. Um, sure, he did what he could, but, but sometimes. His, you know, but all of his books are celebrations of, you know, the best and worst in everybody. Yeah, um, it is, that is one of the great things about is, is he does want to scuttle around inside people's brains and find that which is redeemable and that which is uh, contemptible. Mm-hmm. And, and that is the, that's one of the, that's, that's the great character work. Yeah. Yeah. There are very few just, I, I mean, I can't even think of a villain in a Vonnegut book. Yeah. Um, even the villains are, did you see Tangled? You know, uh, no. Because the mom in Tangled steals Rumpelstiltskin and Rumpelstiltskin? Rapunzel. Ah, oh, crying out loud. <laughs> this is a great episode of it's me fine. not knowing any it's names. Fine. Uh, so Rapunzel. She steals her as a baby because her hair is magical. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't remember that from the original story, but whatever. And so she puts her in a tower. And if, if um you touch her hair while the kid sings, you get your youth back or whatever. So the mom entangled is an evil witch, mm-hmm. except for that the mom entangled who steals this baby as an evil witch raises this child, Rapunzel. Yeah. And... 
when you look at how she's living, you're like, this is not great. She is trapped in this tower and can never leave. But she, you know, has music lessons and yeah. art lessons. And and it felt very much like um, my stepmother mm-hmm. where – so I had more sympathy for the for Rapunzel's mom. I was like, no, she did a bad thing. She stole a baby. But then she raised the baby for her own purposes. Yeah. But she raised it and she did the best she could. And then what was she given for it, of course, is is – you know, she is saved and goes back to her original parents, which was where she belonged. Yeah. But it was such a complex character in a children's movie where the witch is just supposed to be very black and white. Mm-hmm. We're like, mm, I have some not sympathy for the mother, but yeah, I don't know. Yeah. There's no po- I, I noticed that about I saw Frozen. OK, and, how was that? Uh, I, I liked it. Um I heard but, it was good. Yeah, there's there's. It, um, well, spoiler. Not, um, not not a really a spoiler, but there there for most of that movie, there's no villain until there's kind of a dumb twist. Okay, but um, to create a villain, yeah, but it, they didn't really need it. Um, because and, it could have just been a tale of what? Uh, what is the tale of Frozen? It's mostly just about a a, a girl who has this um, magical power that is dangerous. Okay, and uh, her parents' philosophy for dealing with this is to basically just shut it all inside and never <laughs> show the world that you can do these things. Oh, and, Lutherans. Okay. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. It's, uh, Garrison Keillor wrote it. Um, uh, no, it's, uh, and so that's what most of the movie is about. Like there's no villain. Like the villain is, uh, this concept of, of repression. Okay. Um, but then it gets very Disney at the end. But, right, um, right. But what were we talking about? I was going to bring this back. Because, because Vonnegut doesn't have a villain. He, he doesn't usually have a villain. Right. And, uh, yeah. And so in Bluebeard, like the reason the book is called Bluebeard, there's that, that tale of the guy who killed all his wives and there's this one room they can't go into. Uh, the main character, Rainbow Karabekian, um, nice. He, uh, he, when he's old and he's living out, uh, in the Hamptons, he has this potato barn. That has something in it and he won't tell anybody what's in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it turns out that his like masterwork, uh, is he, he bought up all of these, uh, bare canvases that used to have his paintings, but all the paint fell off. Yeah. And he clamps them all together into one giant canvas and he's just spent his, uh, his latter days in there just painting this using like his natural talent as a realist painter painting this realistic so realistic that you can take like a magnifying glass and see like the details and pe- the reflections wow. in people's eyeballs and it's just this one scene which is sort of a, a fantasized version of what he saw in World War II when he uh, Oh, I do remember that. Yeah, he sort of crawled up on top of a hill and saw the aftermath. That was mind-blowing. This- I remember my I remember being genuinely moved by that when I finished it's Bluebird. Incredibly Bluebird. moving. And it and it works as sort of a general theme of, you know, this is when he finds his voice. This is his masterpiece because it's right. the first thing he's done with it. He actually has his soul in it. Right, that came from it. And that's uh, great. And and it also works as sort of a metaphor for Vonnegut because he didn't you know, he didn't really find his voice until Slaughterhouse Five once he did, and he was able to confront himself head on that's when his biggest success happened. right right and it took a very long time for him to get there compared to other people's careers right right he i mean and he had published seven seven books before slaughterhouse five mm-hmm. but some of his greatest stuff 
was were, were these were these move these books after? Yeah, and there's good stuff before. Like that's that's the thing too about Bluebeard is that the stuff that that Rainbow Caribbean makes before is good, right? But it's not. It doesn't have that that extra oomph. That extra know? oomph, yeah. Um, and so and, and there are so many things that like when I was rereading it recently, it made me think about fan fiction. And yeah. like my problems with fan fiction. Now what, now what is your problem with fan fiction? Which is that it's spinning wheels. It's people that are taking this inspiration and not really. And like not creating something new? Yeah. Or, um, and new I think is a kind of a m- misnomer. Okay. It doesn't necessarily have to be new. Um, because no, nothing is a hundred percent original. Right. But the, the, the originality in any kind of art comes from. Right. So, so what you, you put into it. Right. Like I, I've done competitive erotic fan fiction. I love that show. That show's ridiculous and hilarious. <laughs> and my idea, I've done it three times. And my favorite one was the one I wrote with um, two characters from Magic the Gathering. Mm-hmm. I took two cards and I created a scene that was, um, and I don't know enough. Of, I mean, I just made up. I, I grabbed some of their backstory off of the, but what I did was I found a lot of erotic fan fiction based in Magic the Gathering sure. while I was doing my research about these two characters. There's a lot of lit erotic, well, no, that's not it. Oh, fanfiction.net. Yes. I have several friends who write. Some of the craziest erotic fan fiction. I right. love Garfield erotic fan fiction. Oh, really? Mm hmm. Mm hmm. There's a whole Is it him series. and some lasagna? I think there's one, one is him and Natalie Portman. <laughs> <laughs> that was, yeah, cause, I mean, I do like the idea of fan fiction cause you're like, cause when I was a kid, I used to play that. You know, yeah. I used to be like, what if Tarzan ended up on the, on the, on the Starship Enterprise? What would happen? That's more of a mashup. Yeah. But, uh, but that's, you know, or what if I got to hang out with Tarzan, uh, in, uh, in the jungle? A lot of Tarzan, uh, fanfic when I was a child. Yeah. I think I, it's a good, it, 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 it's good as an exercise. Yeah. I think. Uh, and also if you're like a TV writer, if you want to be a TV writer and you're coming on board a show. Oh yeah. Um, it's you know, perfect. It, 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 I mean, Jane Espenson, who wrote for Buffy and she wrote for all these great shows. She started her writing career by sending in a spec script for Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Okay. And, uh, you know, basically that's fan, fan fiction. Yeah. You know, I love comic books and if you jump on board writing Superman, you're basically playing with other people's toys. That's it. Um, there's not a whole lot of difference there, but you know what? I would much rather read something like, I love that stuff. Right. If I had to choose, like Brian K. Vaughn wrote some entertaining ultimate X-Men comic books. Right. I would much rather read his Why the Last Man or Saga. Right. You know, things that come from. Right out of his head. Yeah. I mean, like when you, when you were starting out in standup, like how long do you think it took for you to. Like, it takes about reach that point. Well, the speculation is that it takes about four years, but that my new album is called "This Will Make an Excellent Horcrux" because mm-hmm. it has my soul in it. It has it has a lot of stuff that's super personal and very internal. And whether it's funny or not, we will find out. We will find <laughs> out if uh, the American public is interested. But yeah. Uh, yeah. because I just recorded it a couple of weeks ago, so that's what's so scary. Yeah, I, like. You know, I've always been interested in comedy and done comedy stuff. Right. Uh, it's comedy and, stuff. And, uh, you know, <laughs> how does, but, how is that different than just comedy? Well, it's not, mm-hmm. but you know, like you know, there are many different aspects. There's improv, there's sketch writing, there's yep. acting, there's stand up. The thing that I always, like, I know I would never be a great stand up because I just, I, 
it's so terrifying. Because to be a great stand-up, you you have to put so much of yourself well, it's into, in a very literal way. Very much so. But it, it it's interesting to me when people say, well, he's just doing a character. And you're like... Yeah, that's him though. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's when, when you create some sort of art and you are drawing, let's say you're, you're, you're a painter and you draw something hateful. Mm-hmm. There is a part of you. Why are you drawing that? I mean, what are, what are you saying in that? You know, like there are people who do hateful stand up comedy that they're like, it's just a character. You're like, that's great. If it has a twist on the end, mm-hmm. if it has a point for doing it instead of just, I'm going to beat up retarded people with my words. Yeah. Uh, is there a way in the end of it that you are somehow retarded or, you know, I mean, I want there to be a twist where you aren't the hero. Oh, sure. Where, where you are the slow clap jock at the end of this joke. That's all I want. Make sure you can be the coolest person in the world in your act until you appreciate the little guy. I mean, everyone makes fun of the little guy all the time. That that person is downtrodden for a reason. Mm-hmm. Stand-up comedy in my opinion exists to turn the table on that is to do something else with I, the little guy. Comedy in general, I think. I think that's the key to it. Right. I mean, bad comedy always comes from a place of power directed yeah. at at the powerless, good comedy always comes from the powerless directed at the power. Yeah, it doesn't even make any sense to me. Why would you make fun of the powerless? <laughs> because uh how, why don't you shoot a barrel full of fish unless you need to eat fish? Mm-hmm. And uh and I and I get it. You want to buy land? Uh you can make fun of, you know, the powerless. But yeah. it doesn't make any sense to me to to make fun of the powerless. Write a joke, write something fun. And um but what I thought was interesting about Vonnegut when you were talking about how there wasn't a villain, I was thinking about other characters, other sort of older science fiction of that genre. There weren't necessarily clear-cut villains. Mm. Like Heinlein, there were, there were nebulous, you know, even Orwell, there are these nebulous powers, right? That yeah. are the bad guys. But there's not... They're kind know, of almost aspects of human nature more than anything else. Yeah, it's not Jafar. Mm-hmm. He's not an evil sorcerer that's keeping Aladdin down. Uh, mm-hmm. This is... You know, it's, it's a, it's an idea. And that's what I think is great about, about Vonnegut. Yeah. And makes it more rereadable. I've kind of been rediscovering lately these, these writers that sort of passed me by, um, that were in that era, that sort of golden age of short fiction, speculative yeah. fiction era, who kind of married those two aspects of it in really interesting ways, like that sort of yarn spinning and then also the sort of introspective character based stuff. Uh, I've Who do you a like? Big fan lately of Fritz Lieber. Lieber, I've heard of him. Um, I think it's L I E B E R. Maybe it's L E I. Right, I'll look it up. I'll look it's it up. I E. Um, he uh, has this series of books. These characters called Fafford and the Gray Mouser. Uh, that at <laughs> it first sounds awesome. But at first that? glance, it seems like a sword and sorcery kind of Conan the Barbarian type thing. Fafford is this. Very Conan-esque, sort of hulking, yeah. barbarian guy. The Gray Mouser is sort of a yeah, yeah, D&D nerd might call him a rogue um, <laughs> uh, type gentleman. And then they hook up and have all these adventures. But, um, you know, and, and they're definitely like over-the-top sort of action-packed Conan-type stories. Right. But – there they they quip and they fight and there's like interesting dialogue and interesting mm-hmm, ideas mm-hmm. going through these things that, that, that has a little bit of a spark to it that 
Other the, writers don't. Okay. Um, and that's from the 50s and 60s? And it's 70s? from like the, I think more primarily the 50s. Oh, nice. Uh, and then into the 60s. And then he has a bunch of weird, I haven't even gotten into them yet. Yeah. Uh, they're like on my reading list, all these crazy, weird sci-fi, like standalone oh, okay. stories. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, you know, uh, Todd Mason has sent me, uh, every year for a couple of years, he's been sending me this short science fiction magazine. And I can't, I have a hard time reading short fiction for some reason. Um, Andy loves it. He, uh, he's, he's, uh, constantly reading some short, but he, he, the only short fiction I've ever been able to really get into are comic books. Hmm. And maybe cause it's serialized or something, but I wish I could read more short fiction because when you think about the prose that you can do, you, I mean, the writing can be a lot denser and yet it can, and, and the topic can be a lot more easily resolved, you know, yeah. that type of thing. There's so, a lot of freedom in like, that's, that's actually one of the things I like writing uh, about writing sketch comedy is that it's not like a play. It's not like a movie. It's not like a TV show. It's a world that you've created that lasts for three to five minutes or right. eight minutes if you're on Saturday Night Live. Right. Um, uh, five and, minutes too long if you're, right. <laughs> if you're on television. And then that's it. So you can do whatever you want yeah. to these characters and you should. And like, you should. If you don't, you've failed. Right. You've wasted, you've wasted some effort there to um, some extent. I mean, I get that it's a learned, there's an arc to that too, right? To learn yeah. how to write. How long have you been writing sketch comedy? Uh, a long time. I haven't, I've only been serious. Like I gotten, ser- I've done it since I was a kid, but I've got really serious in the past two years or so. A couple episodes ago, I had Brandy Brown on her, uh, dorkdom was the Supreme court of the United States. Mm-hmm. And, uh, she, her favorite sketch comedy besides Key and Peele, she said, is Sesame Street. Sesame Street does some good stuff. Well, I didn't even think of it as sketches, but it as is. she was, so she, like home lamb, <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's a bunch of lambs and then there's a big bed wolf and uh, it's home lamb and, uh, uh, law and order special letters unit. Mm-hmm. The letter M goes missing. <laughs> sure. Uh, the sons of poetry. Uh huh. And, uh, there's some rhyming going down with uh, some motorcycle dudes. Well, you know, the TV's on, the parents have to watch this stuff. When, right. Uh, and, but I think the kids get a lot out of it too. It's like, you know, the best kids stuff is not condescending. Right, right. And it's, and it's so much more effort than what you think it has to be. Mm-hmm. That I just appreciate that effort. You know, you're like, oh good. Oh, Somebody yeah. cared enough to oh, do it right. Oh, that's the best. When, when you're surprised that something is as good as it is. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's the, like, you know, like one of my favorite TV series of all time is the rebooted Battlestar Galactica. Oh, right. I could not have been less interested in watching that show. And then it turned out to be like one of my favorite things ever made. It's super intense. Um, but, um, oh, but, but it's, but I don't know. We're probably running out of time. Yeah. Well, but we're good for short fiction, short fiction. Right. I can recommend, I was going to bring this up because I think that, that this is the writer now who I think has sort of inherited the Vonnegut mantle. If there is one. Okay. Um, I think Mark Twain, Vonnegut, and now, uh, George Saunders. Okay. Oh, wait a minute. I feel like I've read as George, some George Saunders. He has a few uh, short story collections out. Uh, he only does short fiction. He does okay. nonfiction as well. Um, but, uh, he has a, a short story collection called Pastoralia. Uh, I think his first one was called Civil War Land okay. in Bad Decline. Okay. Uh, and he has a new one that just came out this year. I think it's his best, uh, called 10th of November. Okay. And, um. And it's short fiction and it's speculative fiction and science fiction? Kind of. Um, 
he has a lot of stories that he's kind of obsessed with the idea of artificiality. Mm-hmm. This um, artificiality meant to approximate something real. Um, and so he has a lot of stories that are set in kind of strange types of theme parks. Um, he has a story that's... What? Um, so, for <laughs> instance... Confused. Yes. Here's something that's representative. So he has this story that's set in this um, theme park that's supposed to uh, show how cavemen lived. But there's actually these two actors who their entire lives are spent in a cave pretending to be cavemen. Yeah. And then, um, so their whole job all day long is to, for tourists who walk by, to live as if they're cavemen who watch them. Uh huh. Um, and then at specified times, they're able to go into this like back room and get like a fax from the corporate headquarters, uh, telling them how good of a job they did that day. Wow. It's this kind of weird dystopian <laughs> theme yeah, park. Yeah. Uh, and then the whole short story is about this deteriorating relationship between the husband and the wife caveman actors. Oh. Um, and he has a few stories like that. In his latest collection, there's, uh, there's something sort of similar about all the people, all these people that are taking part in the same, uh, scientific experiment. He has a story about people who are in this kind of like, um, colonial sort of churning butter like colonial williams okay williamsburg kind of mo- yeah, uh, yeah kind of thing um as a theme that keeps popping up okay it's this sort of artificiality this sort of forced existence in a in a in, in in a very structured area yeah as a job yeah how it's like sort of trying to find our humanity in a world that's nothing but like fake versions of things that we wish were true. Right. That is so interesting that, cause it's not, and the character work on this is, is interesting. Like, cause, cause I need to know who the people are, it's right? A, in a book. It's a, like my favorite story from his new collection is just like, it's one of those short stories that like you can only do this in a short story where the whole story is just like maybe 45 seconds of time. Okay. And it's about this kid who is witnessing his neighbor who he has a crush on, this teenage girl, right. getting kidnapped by some creeper who like stops in a van and just drags her to the van. Right. And the the whole story is just like this moment of him like deciding what he's going to do about that. Oh wow. Um it's just wonderful. And it's okay. it, it the things that are similar to Vonnegut, there's a lot of differences. Right. Um the similarities. As well there, there ought to be. That, yeah. Yeah. It's it's sad. His stories are sad but mm-hmm. funny, mm-hmm. and they are all about sort of people just doing their best. Oh, right. <laughs> in the fa- <laughs> in the face of humanity, which can sometimes be very nice and sometimes very can flawed. be very horrible, and sometimes just be completely nonsensical. <laughs> yeah, Maria Bamford's doing this joke where at the end of it is is. We're all just doing the best we can, and sometimes it's just not that good. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, so that is interesting because one of the, one of my favorite authors is this woman, Lois McMaster Bujold. She's on an earlier episode, and it's not sword and sorcery uh, sci-fi. It's it's sort of I think of it as like a like a Firefly kind of Han Solo-y kind of sci-fi. Kind of adventure Yeah, it's adventure It's so It's space opera, okay. I think is what the, the actual term is. Mm-hmm. And her character work is fascinating because it's all done in dialogue. You know, a lot of male – what I've noticed with a lot of male science fiction writers is that it's all done in thought bubbles. Like mm-hmm. it's all narrative. In 
females, my favorite female characters, uh, female writers, it's all done. They're like, really, you're still talking. We're, we're going to talk about our feelings. It's almost a caricature of what it is. Oh yeah. But it was, it's so, I do love the, because when you have a narrative like Heinlein and, and, and Vonnegut, who I love Heinlein, even though there's a lot of orgies going on, mm-hmm. but, um, but with those guys, and Ian Banks too, though Ian Banks does do more dialogue actually, but, um, the, the narrative can be a, a separation, mm-hmm. you know, where, where you're thinking about what you're going to do. You're thinking about how you're going to react to things. You're thinking about how you did what you did and how you reacted to something. Mm-hmm. In Lois McMaster Bujold's books and even Anne McCaffrey, though the writing isn't great, the stories are great, but the dialogue is fascinating because it's someone going, well, this is what I'm thinking about and I'm going to do this. And they're like, well, why would you do that? And you're like, because of this reason. And then we do it. Mm-hmm. And so there is, it's, it's more like a TV show to some extent, I think. Yeah. I think that's the strength. I think that's why we're in this sort of like golden age of TV with all these like incredibly great shows because TV has the luxury of just being nothing but character. Yeah. You know, like Breaking Bad is everybody in the world's favorite show right now. And it's just a, sh- a complete character study. You can't, really do that in a movie although um you know the best movies are ones that understand that character is the most important thing i think that's why marvel comics is having such a great run in movies is because they get that it just it doesn't matter you know nobody really cares about the costume and nobody really cares about all this other right the action is great and the action is easy to do now not now Mm -hmm. it's just plug and play with all this action stuff because of the cgi and all this stuff the character it's, it, it is for me why Marvel is better than DC yeah. is because I know more about what Logan <laughs> Wolverine is thinking about. Yeah. I know more about why Captain America is Captain America than why, than what is happening in Superman's head. Sure. You know, if Spider-Man is about Peter Parker yeah. and Superman is about a costume. Yeah. Superman is, is about some sort of weird giant ideal that isn't real. Yeah. Like Clark Kent. What's happening there? And what can you do? And what can't you do? I mean, the thing about Superman, for me, I love the origin story of Superman over mm-hmm. and I'll watch that over and over and over again, quite honestly. But because it's the only time when he has any doubts. It's the only time when he yeah. when he has any growth at all. That's why they keep retelling it. Right. Because you're like, well, what else? He's so powerful and so impervious that you're like, well, does he have any insecurities? <laughs> Did you read in... um Incorruptible and there was irredeemable and incorruptible. Irredeemable was mm. about a Superman character. It was an image title, I think. No, it might have been Boom or IDW. It wasn't image, I don't think. But it was, uh, irredeemable was about a Superman character who snaps and, uh, and then kills everyone, almost everyone. Oh, I heard about this. Yeah. This yeah. became very highly recommended. Yeah. It is, uh, irredeemable, <laughs> very dark, very dark and incorruptible about a supervillain in that same world. Mm-hmm. Who hears about the irredeemable character and is like, oh well, Jesus! Now I gotta get my act together so that I could fight this fuck. Yeah. And uh, and because he, the incorruptible guy, becomes more powerful the less he sleeps. Mm-hmm. But we are introduced to the incorruptible guy when he is having sex with an underage, like he's a supervillain. He's having sex with some fifteen-year-old runaway, mm-hmm. and he's like, yeah, well, I guess I gotta get my act together. You're gonna have to go find your parents, and. <laughs> Wow. It's so dark. And, but the irredeemable character, I mean, you, 
there is, there's definitely something there for Superman because he, the irredeemable character, the Superman character can hear everything, right? Mm-hmm. So there is a tool bag in every scene where he has saved, he just stops an airplane, right? From crashing into things is great. And it was at a baseball game. And there's one guy in the crowd who goes, why would he wear his tights on the outside? What a, what a, what a fag or something, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. And something horrible. Yeah. And he can hear everything. He can hear everything. He can, he's being mocked. He's being, you know, beloved, all of it. And he finally just <laughs> stops and he just, just kills, just kills and kills and kills. And everybody joins together to stop him from killing and they cannot. Uh, and it, and it's a fascinating story of how they yeah, eventually get really it together. It kind of sounds a little bit like that movie Chronicle that came out. Oh, if you saw that. Is came that out. Riddick? No, no, no. That's not the Chronicles of Riddick. There's this movie that came out. It was so good. Another one of those ones that was like surprise because I had no idea. Okay. Uh, it's about these three kids and it's told like kind of in the style of like a found footage movie. Okay. Um, who come across this weird meteorite thing that gives them all these crazy telekinetic powers. Right. I saw the ad for that. One of them happens to be a very troubled kid. And uh-huh. so the movie is like, here's what happens when you give someone who doesn't have the tools to handle this some right. incredible power. And uh, it's so, so, so well done. Interesting. That's fascinating. Yeah. All right. So you would recommend George Saunders I would. Uh, for, for short fiction at this time. And then people should just go back and reread or read Vonnegut. It's so easy to do. There's it's such a quick read. Yeah, it's not. We didn't talk about uh, Jailbird or Slapstick. Both. I, I like Jailbird. Was Jailbird the one where all of New York got turned into uh, a prison, or was that uh, something else? I think that, that might have been Hocus. That Pocus. was Hocus Pocus. I think Jailbird is uh, like kind of like the history of the labor movement. Oh, okay, yeah. And then Palm Sunday is one of one of his autobiographical ones. Yeah, it's just which like collections I, of speeches and things like that. I love that one. That was it's, fascinating. It's great. It's yeah, great personal philosophy. Yeah, and. Um, I think I read it right around 1983. Crazy. And then uh, I have not read any of these later ones. When Mortals Sleep or Look at the Birdie or Armageddon, A Man Without a Country, God Bless You, Dr. Kevorkian. Yeah. I mean, later in life, he, he did a lot of like op-ed type things for magazines and stuff like that. And okay. So a lot of these later collections are things like that. There's a great book of his letters that just came out. I mean, there's tons of stuff. Right. That guy. He didn't throw anything away. Mm-mm. You got to like it. Uh, Brian Thompson from Quit It Podcast, AmateurScientist.org. Also on iTunes, of course. Also on iTunes. There we go. And uh, you're going to do the UCB Mod Night. You're going to write for a sketch group that is yet to be named yet on to be Febu- named. February 18th here in Los Angeles. Thank you so much for doing The Dork Forest. Oh, thank you for having me. It's been great. That's awesome. Well, that show was awesome. Let's do the credits. Patrick Brady, he fixes the audio every week. He also does the teaser videos on YouTube. So Patrick Brady is an awesome guy, and I thank him for his work. Mike Rickberg sang the song you heard at the beginning, composed and sang it with his girlfriend, Sarah. He's going to sing in about a heartbeat for uh, the Mexican hat dance. And Vilmos fixes my website, JackieCation.com. So support him and his work. Thanks a lot, you guys. Take care out there. Bye. My hat, my hat, my hat. They're dancing around my hat. (laughs) My hat, my hat, my hat. Well, what do you think of that? If it looks like a Mexican hat dance and it sounds like a Mexican hat dance, it's most likely a Mexican hat dance. So take off your hat and let's dance. Yay! Oh my god. We, why don't we just call that as the end of the show?